All right, we are in um, part four of this series where we've kind of been going back to the very beginning of the church, asking the question, um, how did the church get from Jerusalem to Topeka, Kansas in the last 2,000 years, right? Like, why is there a church? Why is this here? Why are we here? And, and beyond that, why does a third of the world's population believe that God sent his son into this world? What is a third of the world's, beyond that, why does a third of the, the world's population, the majority of them, believe that God actually sent his son to redeem us from sin? Well, where did that come from? Why, why is that? And we see the beginning of some of the answers to those questions in the book of Acts, which is where we've been hanging out for the last few weeks. So if this is your first time to join us, either here in the room or online, um, or your first time in a long time, um, I really want to encourage you to go on our website, gracepointtopeka.org, and find uh, the first few installments of this series there. But we've watched Jesus start his church with 120 people. Um, not a huge group of people, but 120 people quickly turns into thousands within a few short weeks right there in Jerusalem. And last week we left off um, with a story with, a, with the Jewish religious leaders dragging the apostles before the Sanhedrin, this Jewish kind of supreme court. And then um, to warn them to stop talking about Jesus, they put a little exclamation point on it and they have them flogged, Right? And didn't beat them, didn't whip them. They, they basically beat them within an inch of their life. And, and, and Luke tells us they warn them not to, you know, talk about the J word anymore. Stop talking about the R word, Jesus and resurrection. Stop it. And that's where we, we left off. Here it is. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's interesting. They don't huddle together and ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Right? They, 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 they don't, God, why me? And if God really loved us, you don't see any of that happen. They boldly go back to preaching the gospel. You, you, can, you can arrest us. You can beat us within an inch of our life. You can kill our family and friends. We're not going to stop talking about what we've seen, a resurrected Savior, over and over, all throughout the book of Acts. You see them respond like that. And because of that kind of faith, because of that kind of resolve, because that kind of courage is hard to ignore, the church there in Jerusalem starts to grow so rapidly, so, so big. It becomes a big church. That structure has to be developed. You see some issues pop up that the apostles can't really take care of, so you need other leaders. And you see other leaders start to come forward. And one of those leaders, his name is Stephen. We don't know a whole lot about Stephen. But we do know that, that Stephen caught on to some of that boldness and courage, and, and he didn't have a problem speaking boldly about Jesus in public. And so he was eventually arrested. He was falsely tried and gives a defense in front of the Sanhedrin. It's one of the longest messages um, in, in the Bible. You can find it in Acts chapter 7 if you want to. But at the end of his message, at the end of his defense, the Jewish religious leaders and some part of the crowd are so ticked off. They pick him up. They take him outside the city, and they stone him to death. And Stephen becomes the, the first Christian martyr. Side note, 
I would rather that not happen today at the end of this message. I'll just throw that out there, okay? It's not one of those messages, but I just want to throw it out there, okay? This is what happens to Stephen. And, and as Luke explains what happens next in the story, he introduces, kind of with a little foreshadowing, he introduces a character that will be the main character, the main person, the main leader that makes the biggest difference in the growth of the local church outside of the Holy Spirit. And here's, here's how Luke introduces what happens next. Acts um, chapter 8, starting in verse 1, talking about the stoning of Stephen, and Saul approved of their killing him. Saul. Now, most of you know, but, but Saul is the Hebrew name of the man that we know of as Paul, as in the apostle Paul. So Paul was standing there with Stephen being killed, approving of it. Don't forget that. Luke goes on. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember when Jesus said that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? Did you know that the way it happened was persecution? Persecution is what allowed the church to move beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It, it allowed the church to spread all over the place, which is interesting. When you look at church history throughout the last 2,000 years, anytime you see the church blow up and go global, go, pardon the term, but viral, there's always persecution. And, and as Americans, what do we want to do with persecution? We want nothing to do with it. But anytime you see persecution, you see the church blow up. Interesting. Second verse. It says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul, Paul, becomes known as the number one inquisitor, inquisitor the, the most rabid opponent to track down Christians and throw them in jail. Paul, Paul would basically kick over an anthill and the ants would scatter. He'd go find another anthill, kick it over, and the ants would scatter all over the place. And by persecuting the church, he actually drove the church into places that it wasn't before. He, he drove the church into places where they, Christians weren't going. And Luke tells us that this persecution went on unchecked for about three years, and at the end of that three-year period, something happened that changed everything for Saul, and it actually affects you. You don't know this, but what happened to Saul in this moment is actually affecting you to this day. It's affecting me to this day. Here's, here's what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, not the apostles, but the rest of the church. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. What in the world is the way? Sounds like a cult, doesn't it? Well, apparently, when Jesus would teach, he, he would say this so often, that I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He would say that so often that when it came time to describe or, or label this new movement that was happening, they called it the way. That's where this comes from. And so, Saul is on his way to Damascus to stamp out the way. Without permit, we're with permission to arrest any Christians he finds. And here's what happened. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, here's an interesting question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute, what's it say? Me. Well, if the church is the church like most people think about it today, the voice should have said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute it? Why, why do you persecute the move? Why, why, why do you persecute the, the, the building? Why do you persecute the institution, the, the leaders, the hierarchy? Why do you persecute it? But at the very beginning of the ecclesia, it says, why do you persecute me? Saul responds, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, a person, not a thing. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Implication. What you do to my people, you do to me, Saul. This is, this is dad showing up whenever his kid's getting picked on. Whatever you do to my people, you do to me. And the presence of my people is the same as my presence on this earth. And if you've been around Grace Point for any length of time, you've heard me say this before, but I just want to make sure this is, this is it's a perfect moment for us to remind ourselves of this, that we the ecclesia, the assembly, the congregation, the people are the representatives of Jesus on this earth. Not you individually, because you're not good enough. But us, collectively. We're still not good enough collectively. But we are, we are the body of Christ, the hands, the feet, the mouthpiece of Jesus on this earth. So when people are with us, when people are around us, they're as close to Jesus on this earth as they're going to get. So many implications of that. Man, we could go on for weeks on that alone. He goes on, verse 6. He says, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul gets up, um, realizes he can't see. He was literally blinded by the light. That's where that song came from, by the way. All right? You have to be older than 45 to get that one. He was blinded by the light. And so the people around him took him by the hand, led him to Damascus, and for three days he sits in someone's house, blind as a bat. What do you think Paul prayed about those three days? Like, do you think, you think his worldview was challenged at all? I mean, I, I, just, I just imagine, what in the world was going through his brain? Well, he sat there. What in the world just happened? And how did I get here? For three days, he sits there blind. Meanwhile, uh, there's another guy in Damascus, um, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a, in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Again, this reads like history. The, 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 the details are so specific. It was called Straight Street because it was a straight street. Right, And there were people in the first century that read Luke's letter and go, oh yeah, I've been there before. That's, this, is, this is Luke's account. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, I bet he was. And Ananias goes, Saul, that name sounds familiar, Lord. Verse 13 Lord, Ananias answered, 
I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, I don't think I need to go looking for him, Lord, because he's going to find me. He's actually here to find me. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. And this is, this is where the story starts to get rich. It's where it starts to answer some of our questions. How in the world did the church make it to Topeka, Kansas in 2020? Here's, here's this, the beginning of the answer. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Lord, to the Gentiles? Like to people who don't have an Old Testament background? To people who, who didn't grow up looking for and waiting for a Messiah? Like this isn't just for people who live in this region of the world and who believe the same thing I believe. This is, this is for the entire world? To which God could have said, yep, and you're not going to believe who I chose to be my mouthpiece. So Ananias obeys. He goes and finds Saul, the man responsible for killing people Ananias loves. The man responsible for taking men and women and taking them to Jerusalem, throwing them in prison, and he never hears from them again. The number one enemy of the movement of Jesus, Ananias knocks on the door, walks in, and there's Saul sitting in a chair, sitting on the ground blind as a bat. And Ananias lays hands on him, probably not in the way that he wanted to lay hands on him, but he lays hands on him, prays for him, and Luke tells us that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And Saul spends several days there in Damascus getting to know um, the followers of Jesus, eventually starts preaching in the synagogue. Wouldn't you have loved to be there the first day that Saul preached about Jesus? Woo! You think he was a little excited? That would have been a day. Then Luke gives us this little detail. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Talk about a turnaround. Talk about you were going this way, and now you're going this way. Saul's it. He, wow, what a story. And then, we don't know this from Scripture. There's a couple parts that we can pick up, but for the next 12 to 15 years, Saul basically disappears. He shows up here and there, but, but he had some things to learn. He had some people to learn from. Um, he tells us in the book of Galatians that he spends about two weeks solid with Peter, just learning from, um, the, talking about, hearing him teach him about the life of Christ, the miracles, the teachings. Um, he talks about spending time with James, the brother of Jesus. We know that he went to Jerusalem at least a couple times um, just to sit with the apostles there, absorbing as much as he could from the people who were closest to Jesus. After that time of preparation, he launched out on what we know of as Paul's missionary journeys. And for the next 10 to 11 years, he travels through modern-day Turkey, uh, modern-day Greece, where he, where he would start these little ecclesias, these little churches. And, and he would travel in three big circles, go to the, the major cities around the Mediterranean Rim, and everywhere he went, he would go to the synagogue first. 
Every city that there was a synagogue in, he would go to the synagogue, try to convince as many Jews as possible that Jesus was, in fact, their Messiah. And after they beat him and kicked him and threw him out, sometimes flogged him, he'd get himself up, dust himself off, and he would go to the Gentiles. He'd go to the Gentiles in that community and say, guys, I got good news for you. All those questions you have about God and eternity that your religion has tried to answer for you for your entire life, God has sent the answer. God has sent his son to be the answer to all of those questions that you have about him, about life, about eternity, about death. God has acted on your behalf by sending his son into the world. He did that in Athens. He did that in Ephesus. He did it in Corinth. Major cities, minor cities, fearlessly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. And then in the year 58, or excuse me, when he was 58, he was arrested while he was in Jerusalem, taken up to Caesarea, which is a northern city, kept in jail for two years, um, eventually appealing to the emperor as a Roman citizen. After two more years, he began the long, dangerous journey back to Rome where he was under house arrest for two more years. While he was in, under house arrest there, um, that's where he wrote the books of the Bible that we know of as Ephesians and Philippians. There's a couple other books of the Bible or other, other letters that he wrote that have been lost that we don't know about. But they were letters that he sent back to those little ecclesias, those little churches that he planted on his, on his missionary journeys. After two years in Rome, he was released, rearrested in the year 66, Spent about a year and a half in prison, this time in a real dungeon in Rome. Nero was the emperor, and we all know Nero's fondness for Christianity. In the year 67, Paul's prison doors open, and two Roman guards march him out. And he doesn't know where he's going, but he has a pretty good idea where he's going, and, and, and no ceremony. No eyewitnesses. We don't really know where this happened. But that was the day that Paul was beheaded. His life ended, but his impact had just begun. A year later, the Emperor Nero commits suicide because he was afraid that he was going to be assassinated by the people closest to him. And today, we name our dogs Nero and our son Saul. What an impact. Now, what's the, what's the significance of that? Here's part of the significance of that. Very, very bad things can happen to very, very godly people, and Jesus' church marches on. Very, very unexplainable things can happen to extraordinarily faithful people, and God is not rocked by that. God is not changed by that. It's no mystery to him. This is one of the reasons that I have tried to say over and over and over again, COVID never closed the church. COVID never affected the ecclesia one bit. Jesus continues to build his church and never this is so important to us. Never throughout the book of Acts do you find Christians huddling together afraid that God has lost control. Afraid that God's not paying attention. 
afraid that he's not answering their prayers or doesn't love them anymore. What you find is a bold commitment to the life-changing, world-changing message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They were hyper-focused on that message, regardless of what happened to them or around them. How we doing, church? How we doing? What are we focused on? What's the message we're focused on? It was Paul's boldness. It was Paul's courage to get on a boat, not a cruise ship, a first century boat, time and time and time again to visit these pagan cultures that were anti-everything that he had to teach. But to consistently do that, and it's one of the reasons, just one of them, it's one of the reasons you and I know about Jesus today because that was the beginning of the global church. That was the beginning of the missionary movement. I mean, come on. None of the churches that Paul planted in the first century are in existence to today. They're all gone. Not one is left. But his impact, the, the thing that the Holy Spirit did through Paul, allowed Christianity to thrive and multiply all over the Gentile world. It's one of the reasons that there is even an American church today. You can trace it all the way back to Paul's journeys. But part of his role, part of his role as a missionary, there, there was something that Paul that did that was so extraordinarily important. Paul, um, Paul was very educated, probably a wealthy man. He was a Roman citizen, so he had access to things that even the apostles didn't have access to. And because of his, um, because of his brilliance, because of his station in life, because of his connections, um, he was able to explain and then transfer the concepts of Judaism through Christianity to a Gentile world. You see him doing this over and over. In fact, next week we're going to see um, Paul actually gets in trouble with the Jews because he was so focused on taking Christianity to the Gentiles. It, he got in trouble for it. And, but, but this is what God called him to do. It's what God raised him up to do, to help the, the population of the world that didn't have an Old Testament background that didn't, wasn't looking for a, a Messiah, understand the essence of the gospel, he would say, here's the bottom line. Here's the irreducible minimum. It's what you've got to get. And over and over and over and over again, Paul would go into these Gentile regions and say, even if you're not Jewish, even if you never understand the Old Testament, here's the thing you have to understand. Here's the thing that God has done in our lifetime. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives us that. He gives us the takeaway for all of us who aren't, we're Gentiles, right? Have you ever read the Old Testament and go, huh? What does that mean? Because you're Gentile. We, we, we weren't raised looking for a Messiah, to be on the lookout for a Messiah. And, and in this passage, he defines as clear as anywhere in the New Testament exactly what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians is one of those letters he wrote to the, to the ecclesia in Corinth. And here's what he says to them. This is so relevant for us today. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Basically, I don't want you to forget everything I taught you, so can we review? But I don't want to review everything. I just want to tell you the, the most important things. Verse 3. For what I received from God, from the apostles during all that time of preparation, for what I received, 
I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, if you forget everything else, don't understand anything else, here's what's first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That's how we know he died. Because when somebody dies, you bury them. That's how we know he really died. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Anybody know who Cephas was? Peter. Yeah, it was Peter. Appeared to Cephas. And then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. We want to skip over this like this is just some you know, minute detail. It's a huge detail. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Corinthians, Gentiles, I know this whole thought, this whole idea of somebody coming back from the dead is absolutely ridiculous to you. I, I know it's hard to embrace that somebody could be actually dead and then three days later, actually alive. I know it's hard to understand, but if you want to buy a boat ticket and go to Jerusalem, there's 500 people that are still alive to this day that you could talk to, not 2020 today, but when he wrote this. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's not just a blind faith. There's actually evidence if you want to pursue the evidence. That's what he's saying. And then watch this. <laughs> and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What in the world does that mean? He explains it. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why would you say that, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. Whoa, 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 whoa. This, this, is, this is where I want to go. Paul, you, you planted, you started more churches than any of the other apostles. You risked way more than any of the other apostles. I, I think you're selling yourself short here. But Paul would say, no, I don't even deserve to be in the same room. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. I was responsible for killing Christians. I stood there and watched as they threw rocks at Stephen's head and killed him. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. But, don't miss this, verse 10. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. He says, I don't know why God chose me to do this. Sometimes I honestly wish he would have chosen somebody else. And of all the people that should have been given this assignment, I'm the last one. But by his grace, because of his grace, which every single one of us can say, every single one of us, by his grace. Paul. Paul had more of an effect on your life, your faith, than sometimes we understand. Paul brings to us, those of us who don't have an Old Testament background, who, who weren't raised to look out for a Jewish Messiah, he brought us the bottom line, the thing you can't forget, and here it is, four easy, simple statements. Christ died for our sin. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. That's it. Christ died for our sin. 
He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Everybody wake up. We're going to say this together. Ready? Here we go. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. One more time. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. It's, it's like Paul is saying, listen, I know like you've got questions about the seven literal days of creation and what happened to the dinosaurs, Apostle Paul? I know you've got all those questions. We can talk about that, but here's what you need to know. Christ died for your sin. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. I know, I know you've been reading Revelation and are we living in the end times and we can talk about that, but you need to center your life around this. Christ died for your sin. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. Lots of questions you'll never have concrete answers to, and you don't understand certain verses in the Bible, and sometimes it's so complicated you think you have to go to seminary to understand it. There's so much you want to know, but there's one thing you need to know. Christ died for your sin. You're a sinner. Christ died for your sin. He was buried, which means he really died. And he is really alive. And the way we know that is because he appeared. There are people that say they saw him. That's the starting point. That's the bottom line. That's the non-negotiable. If you want to wrestle with Christianity, don't look at the Christians that disappoint you. Don't, don't look at your parents who raised you to be a Christian, and then when you left the house, they were divorced, and your dad ran off with somebody. Don't look at them. Look at this. Did Christ die for your sin? Was he buried? Did he raise? And did he appear? That is the point of all of this. It's been the point of all this for 2,000 years. And here's my question. Have you ever embraced that personally? Not have you come to church. Have you embraced that personally? Because many of us, a lot of us as, as kids, our parents sat us down, Sunday school teachers sat us down, maybe a pastor sat us down and explained this to us. And you may not remember exactly what they said, but you walked away from that understanding. Christ died for my sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He was seen. And in that moment, even as a kid, you entered into a faith relationship with your heavenly father. Did you understand the entire Bible in that moment? No. Did you, did you have all of your adult questions answered in that moment? No, you weren't even an adult yet. You, you couldn't explain the discrepancies in the gospel accounts, but here's what was clear to you. Jesus died for your sin. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. That is what we all stand on. That's what brings us together. That's what we have in common with followers of Jesus all over this city, all over this country, and all over this world. And so here's my question. Here's my question as we wrap this up. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've said, I believe that. I embrace that. And, and I will give my life to a God who did that on my behalf. Have you ever expressed that to your heavenly father? I believe your son, your, you sent your son to die for my sin. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose from the dead, and I believe he lives today as my personal Savior. Has there ever been a moment like that for you? I know you have questions. I, I know you have doubts. 
I know there are things that, that you want to get your minds around, but the real issue is what have you done with Jesus? And if there's never been a moment in your life that you've done that, I just want to give you an opportunity right here, right today, a perfect day to do that because you're with the ecclesia. You're with the gathering. You're as close to Jesus on this earth as you're going to get. What a perfect day. So if something's clicked for you, I, if something's dawned on you, if you went, you know what? I, I think I believe that. You know what that was? That was not good preaching. That was the Holy Spirit. That was God wooing you to him. And perhaps this is the day for you to embrace Jesus as your savior and join the ecclesia, his church, his movement. And so as we, as we bow our heads in prayer, for those of you watching online or even for those of you here in this room, I, I just wanna lead you through a prayer. Change the words, you can say it out loud, you can say it to yourself. But if today's the day for you, you say to your Father in heaven, God, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for mine. I admit that I've sinned. I haven't met the standard it takes to be right with you. But today, I'm no longer trusting in my own goodness. I'm trusting that Jesus' death on the cross is what makes me good. I believe he died. I believe he was buried. I believe on the third day you raised him from the dead, that he was seen. And I embrace Jesus as my personal savior, trusting him to provide forgiveness for all my sin, my past sin, sins I'll commit today, the sins I'll commit in the future. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for receiving me into your family. I'm thrilled to join your ecclesia. And it's in that name, the name of Jesus, the resurrected Savior, that I pray these things. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for people like Luke who wrote down these things so that we can read them, but thank you even more for your spirit who makes it alive. Your spirit that works in the hearts and the minds of people. Jesus, I thank you for the men and women, the boys and girls that prayed that prayer today. God, it is not a finish line, it's a starting block. So God, I pray that you would do your work that you have begun today. That you would do your work in them and through them in your church. For your glory, not for ours. For the benefit of others, not for ours. Jesus, thank you for a moment that we can just pause and we can look up. And we can sing songs about what you've done in the past. We can sing songs about what you're doing right now. We can point other people to what you're going to do in the future. 
God, would you inhabit the praises of your people? We ask this. We pray this in Jesus' name.